Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. One is actually brand new from the weekend of September 24th through 26th. And the other two have been released in other parts of the country, but I haven't seen them until this weekend or before this weekend before I did my show. So I'll start with the newest one first. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is the long-awaited movie adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen is a coming-of-age Broadway musical with music and lyrics by Benji Pasek and Justin Paul, and book by Stephen Levinson. Just a very brief description of Dear Evan Hansen's evolution as a musical. It actually started off, it was written, I think, in 2014. In 2015, it debuted in Washington, D.C. In 2016, it became an off-Broadway musical, and then... In December of 2016, it debuted on Broadway and became a nearly instant hit. It has won the uh, Tony Award for Best Musical, another Tony Award it won for Best Book of a Musical, and another Tony Award for Best Original Score. It also, the CD or the uh, album soundtrack that was released, won a Grammy Award also for Best Musical Theater Album. And it's won some other awards too, an Obie Award here, a Laurence Olivier Award there, but I won't get into exactly how many awards it won. The point here is that it was such a big hit on Broadway and almost instantly that it was inevitable that they'd make a movie about it. Full disclosure, I don't go to see um, plays on Broadway. Often, I think the last one I went to see was in 2004. And of course, I don't live in New York City, so nor do I have a lot of money, so I can't exactly uh, afford to do that. But I have heard a lot of things about Dear Evan Hansen. I know it has a following, particularly amongst young people, because it does deal with a lot of modern-day hot topics. It's, it's a movie that has its fun moments, but overall it deals with some very serious issues affecting teenagers today. So what's the movie and the Broadway show about? It is about a young high schooler by the name of Evan Hansen, who is a high school senior with social anxiety disorder, and he experiences a journey of self-discovery and acceptance following the suicide of a fellow classmate. And this fellow classmate, he doesn't know particularly well, but through a series of circumstances that are actually not very contrived, um, and that's a compliment, his grieving parents, or at least his mother, Cynthia, played by Amy Adams, and his stepfather, Larry, played by Danny Pino, assume that Evan Hansen is their recently deceased son's best friend. And Evan Hansen, who in this movie is played by Ben Platt, kind of goes along with the ruse. 
And we've seen a lot of movies and TV shows like this before where there's a protagonist who is kind of caught in a lie and goes along with it for a while until he realizes that he can't. I, having not seen the original Broadway musical, I was really hoping that there wouldn't be that third act where Evan Hansen comes out and says, okay, here's what really happened. Unfortunately, that is the case, but I don't think that takes away from my enjoyment of the film. It does take a a fairly familiar story trope about somebody being caught in a lie and having to go along with it, but I don't think its intentions are bad, and I actually do think that the musical numbers, as well as the fact that this is a very timely story as of this year in which we live where it's very common for teenagers to have smartphones and also the fact that social media has contributed, unfortunately, to the rise of depression and social anxiety amongst teenagers. I think all that kind of makes up for what's otherwise a relatively predictable story arc, but not altogether a predictable story in general. Evan Hansen in this movie, as I said, is played by Ben Platt, who happens to be the original actor who originated the role of Evan Hansen. He started in the May reading in 2014 and played Evan Hansen on Broadway until 2018. And right now, Dear Evan Hansen, I don't think is going to be shut down as a Broadway show anytime soon. And certainly movies don't stop Broadway shows from being made. So Dear Evan Hansen is going to be around for quite a while. Ten years from now, will it be dated? I think in terms of the technology and the smartphones, maybe it will be, but somehow I doubt it. But there are a number of other uh, people in this movie who are not in the original Broadway show who still bring a unique sense of character to their characters. For example, Evan Hansen's mother, Heidi Hansen, is played by Julianne Moore. I think in a performance that at first starts off with one that I think maybe any actress could have played, but especially towards the third act, I think that Julianne Moore really brings a fresh perspective to her character. There's also another actress here who plays Evan Hansen's longtime crush, Zoe, and she's played by uh, Caitlin Dever. And as it turns out, Zoe is the sister of the um, student who committed suicide. And that's not a spoiler, by the way. This happens within the first uh, 20 minutes of the film. Also, Evan Hansen begins to develop a relationship with the class president, Alana Beck, who's played in this movie by Amanda Stenberg. And Amanda Stenberg is an actress who seems to have been in, a couple of years ago, three or four movies a year. It's been a while since we've seen Amanda Stenberg, but she is a welcome presence in this movie. But one of the problems that Dear Evan Hansen has is you know that Evan Hansen has had a crush on Zoe, uh, Connor Murphy's uh, sister, Connor Murphy being the uh, suicidal classmate for a while, but you don't know exactly why he's attracted to her or if they 
even had any encounters before then. If anything, it seems like Evan Hansen has a lot more in common and maybe a bit more chemistry with Alana Beck, Amanda Stenberg's character, than um, he does with Zoe Murphy. But I did think that the parts where he begins to befriend the Murphy family and actually learn a lot more about a classmate with whom he's had some tense encounters before he committed suicide um, were actually plausible. I thought they, they felt realistic. And I did actually really enjoy, for what it's worth, the story arc between the Murphy family and Evan Hansen himself. And I thought that the metamorphosis that Evan Hansen goes through felt genuine. And a lot of people have said that Ben Platt is 28 years old and shouldn't be playing a high school student. Well, maybe, but I think very much like some other actors like Jenny Slate, for instance, Ben Platt looks young enough to pass as a high school student for now. But if he, if his movie career develops, I think that (laughs) this will probably be the last movie in which he plays a high school student, but he'll probably go on in his early 30s to play a college student. And uh, let me see, is there anything else that I could tell you about this musical? I think there were some parts that really did cut to the core of me. Uh, the, The music, of course, as you might imagine, considering that it's Tony and Grammy winning, is really touching, especially one scene where Evan Hansen is supposed to make a speech in front of his entire high school telling them about his his friend Connor Murphy, and I put friend in quotes, and it, it starts off rough, but then it ends with him being a viral sensation. And he does sing a very touching song, about being alone and having anxiety. Don't ask me what the song is because I, while I do remember the the music, I don't remember a, a lot of the names of the songs, but it doesn't really matter exactly whether you know the songs by heart or not. What matters is how they make you feel. And I was really touched, especially by the songs that Ben Platt sang. There was one great song that Julianne Moore sang in the third act. I don't know if Julianne Moore is actually singing or not, but if she's lip syncing, she is very convincing at lip syncing. So Dear Evan Hansen, I I think is a satisfying musical that deals with some very heavy topics, but I don't think it deals with it in a very pandering way or in any kind of uh, way that might be patronizing or out of touch with reality, particularly considering that people sing to one another in this musical. I do think that Dear Evan Hansen is timely, and for somebody who did not see the original stage show on Broadway, at least not yet, it, I think, did its job as a musical and as a story. There was one part though, that really didn't uh, sit particularly well with me. 
you learn as the movie progresses that the Murphy family liked to go to a certain apple orchard for picnics, and it was one of Connor Murphy's favorite places. And there's one part where Alana Beck, Amanda Stenberg's character, starts a GoFundMe page to get this apple orchard named after Connor Murphy. And in order to do that, they need to raise $100,000. Now, that seems particularly puzzling to me that you would have to raise six figures to name an apple orchard, not a state park, an apple orchard after a kid who committed suicide. Or anyone for that matter. I mean, couldn't you just ask the person who owns the orchard to, to name it, uh, something else, or couldn't you have people sign a petition without giving money? I think in reality, if somebody put up a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe like this, I think people would call the fundraisers out for extortion and who could blame them. So dear Evan Hansen, I think it's in serious moments, really, cuts to the core of the viewers and the listeners. I I would say there are some moments that miss greatness, but Dear Evan Hansen in my book gets a rating of a very high checkout. I do think that Ben Platt acts very well and sings very well on camera for somebody who hasn't had as much on-camera experience as even some of the actors his age, like Amanda Stenberg, for example, but most especially the other Academy Award nominated and winning actors in this film, such as Julianne Moore and Amy Adams, amongst others. And while the story arc was a little bit familiar, I did love the songs. I did love Ben Platt's performance. Julianne Moore, Amy Adams, Caitlin Dever, Amanda Stenberg, and all the rest turned in very realistic performances, which they didn't necessarily have to, considering it was a Broadway musical. But it's a more realistic Broadway musical than, for example, Cats. And fortunately, it is a much, much better uh, film adaptation than Cats. But not quite as good, I would say, as the recent uh, film adaptation of In the Heights, for example. But Dear Evan Hansen does come close. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which finally opened in the area in which I live, Nashville. Uh, Even though it opened seemingly everywhere else the weekend of September 17th through 19th. It tells the true story of the woman who was known to millions, if not billions, as Tammy Faye Baker. And eventually, well, she was born, actually, Tammy Faye LaValle in her native Minnesota. After marrying the Reverend Jim Baker, she became Tammy Faye Baker. And she remarried a little while later, without spoiling too much, 
uh, and became Tammy Faye Mesner in the mid nineties until, and she had that name until she died tragically in 2007. She died of colon cancer and, oh gosh, if you ever see the Larry King interview of Tammy Faye Mesner in the, the days before she died, it is quite heartbreaking to see her succumb to cancer like she did. But I do, even though I really do not trust televangelists, I admire, uh, Tammy, the late Tammy Faye Mesner for a number of reasons. The eyes of Tammy Faye is actually based directly on a documentary of the same name that came out in the year uh, 2000. It was directed by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato and was narrated by, of all people, RuPaul. Because Tammy Faye Baker was, unlike most other televangelists, especially more conservative ones like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, seemed to be liberal, for one, and two, very accepting of people in the gay community, which is probably one of the reasons why she is still a gay icon to this very day. The, the dramatized The Eyes of Tammy Faye is directed by Michael Showalter, and Michael Showalter is a comedic actor who got a start on the state and has since been in movies like Wet Hot American Summer, and the Baxter, amongst others. As far as directing goes, he's directed several TV shows, but he's also directed some very unique and original romantic comedies, such as Hello, My Name is Doris, which starred uh, Sally Field, and The Big Stick, excuse me, The Big Sick, which is uh, which he directed and stars Kumail Nanjiani. And Kumail Nanjiani became a household name because of that movie, but it also stars uh, Zoe Kazan, Holly Hunter, and Ray Romano, amongst other actors. So Michael Showalter has directed several comedies before this, but The Eyes of Tammy Faye certainly has its funny moments. After all, Tammy Faye Baker was a bit of a, an easy target for late-night talk show hosts and Sam Kinison in the 80s. And arguably, when the PTL network, which she and her then-husband, Reverend Jim Baker, founded, um, got into a sex scandal and also uh, Jim Baker was found guilty of tax evasion and misappropriation of funds, uh, her downfall was probably... <sighs> made fun of a lot more than Jim Baker's downfall. And she took a lot of flack for her makeup and the way she looked, probably a little bit more flack than she deserved. And that's all detailed here in this movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which I should note was made this year. And Jessica Chastain plays Tammy Faye Baker in probably one of Jessica Chastain's best performances. Obviously, Jessica Chastain is an excellent actress, and some of my favorite movies with her in them include Zero Dark Thirty, for which I still believe she should have won the Academy Award for Best Actress over 
Jennifer Lawrence, who did win that year. She's also been good in other movies like Molly's Game, The Tree of Life, and Interstellar, just to name a few. But this is the first movie where I believe Jessica Chastain plays a character, not to mention a very public figure. But as Tammy Faye Baker, then Mesner, gets older, Jessica Chastain seems to disappear and I do mean this as a compliment, into Tammy Faye Baker's overly made-up face. And the same kind of reaction that I got from Jessica Chastain playing Tammy Faye Baker was very similar to when I first saw Charlize Theron play Eileen Vornos in Monster. With the exception of the first few scenes where Jessica Chastain is a young um, budding evangelist who first encounters uh, the soon-to-be Reverend Jim Baker is played by Andrew Garfield in this film. As she gets older and as their success escalates, the money starts rolling in, and then the proverbial you-know-what hits the fan... I couldn't recognize Jessica Chastain anymore. She, as I said, really disappeared into Tammy Faye Baker. And by the time the movie ended, I felt like I was watching the real Tammy Faye Baker. And that's not only a testament to Jessica Chastain's performance. It's also a testament to whoever applied the makeup to Jessica Chastain. It's a great makeup job, which I think if this movie gets nominated for absolutely nothing else, It should be nominated for Best Makeup. But I do sincerely hope that Jessica Chastain gets nominated for Best Actress. And considering she hasn't won yet, despite having been nominated uh, a few times, I think she does have a chance with winning with this one. Because obviously, it was very easy to make fun of Tammy Faye Baker when the PTL network was biting the dust. But... I felt a lot of sympathy for Tammy Faye Baker. Interestingly enough, even more than when I saw the documentary of the same name, which came out 20 years ago. There were a lot of times where I felt terrible for Tammy Faye Baker and some of the mistakes that she made, as well as the ones that Jim Baker made. And speaking of Jim Baker, Andrew Garfield also turns in a great supporting performance. And I felt like when... He and Tammy Faye first met. It was very sweet, and I'm I'm trying to think of other words that don't sound girly, but you know what I mean. It was very sweet. It was very lovely. But their marriage seemed to hit the skids the more successful they got. And considering how their marriage ended as cataclysmically as it did, this performance with the two of them together in the same scene felt very realistic. And the whole PTL scandal happened when I was about five or six years old. So I don't remember it as it happened, but I do, of course, remember seeing the the news footage and the documentary, as well as a very excellent book written by Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's son, Jay Baker, who is actually an evangelist, but not not a televangelist like like the likes of Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson, both of whom are portrayed in this film. 
how they're portrayed? Well, I don't particularly like Jerry Falwell Sr., or I didn't like him when he, he was still alive. And Vincent D'Onofrio's performance here does not do Jerry Fal- the late Jerry Falwell any favors. I really have to put my biases aside. I think Vincent D'Onofrio acted very well, but man, if you liked Jerry Falwell when he was alive, you might be kind of angry with Vincent D'Onofrio's performance here. But to me, it felt genuine. It felt like the real Jerry Falwell. And also, Gabrielle, excuse me, Gabriel Olds plays Pat Robertson here. And he also plays him a little bit questionably, although not as unflatteringly as Vincent D'Onofrio plays Jerry Falwell. But this movie does tell a really good story. It makes Tammy Faye Baker, or who later became Tammy Faye Mesner, as I said, I think arguably more sympathetic than the 2000 documentary did. And that movie, that documentary really cut to the core of what made Tammy Faye the way she was. Her religious faith, her liberal ideology, as well as her notorious makeup. And I, while I do think that the movie did skip some notable points about both Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's lives... I do think that they got a lot of it right, and Jessica Chastain's performance in this is nothing short of phenomenal. Andrew Garfield does a really good job playing Jim Baker as well, definitely as a young man. As an older man, I think they could have actually given him better makeup because I do think that the Reverend Jim Baker, the real guy who is still alive today, he's still a televangelist, but not nearly as influential as he was in the 1980s, but... The real Jim Baker to me looked more like Jack Nicholson when he played the Joker in the original Batman film from 1989. I'm not saying that as an insult. I'm just telling you to give you perspective. And I do think that they could have maybe made Andrew Garfield look a bit older. But the point is that whether young or old, Andrew Garfield did a great job playing Jim Baker here. And speaking of Academy Awards... Andrew Garfield was positively snubbed for an Oscar back in 2010 when he was in the movie The Social Network, where he played the role of the Facebook co-founder Eduardo Saverine, who was famously duped, allegedly, by the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg. But Andrew Garfield has been nominated for one Oscar for Best Actor for Hacksaw Ridge. I think he's going to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this film. And if he isn't, or if he's not in consideration, he better be. But it's really too late. It's too soon to tell. But The Eyes of Tammy Faye was a very pleasant surprise. It, It definitely represents a breakthrough in directing for Michael Showalter. And Jessica Chastain grounds this film so well. The Eyes of Tammy Faye gets my rating of a knockout. It is superbly acted by just about everyone involved, but most especially Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. It has some killer supporting performance by the likes of Cherry Jones, who plays Tammy Faye Baker's mother, Vincent D'Onofrio as Jerry Falwell, 
uh, Sam Yeager as Roe Messner, and notice the last name there. And there's just a lot of great things to say about the eyes of Tammy Faye. So whether you're not as liberal as Tammy Faye Baker slash Mesner was, if you don't like televangelists the way that I don't like them in general, and I'm a broadcaster for God's sake, I think you will still really appreciate all the performances in this film because they are nothing short of phenomenal. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Blue Bayou. This is a movie that is written by, directed by, produced by, or co-produced by, and starring Justin Chan. And Justin Chan is an actor with several credits to his name. Unfortunately, some of those credits include the Twilight movie from 2008 and all of its sequels. However, as a director, he has directed three other feature films before this one. In 2015, he directed Man Up. In 2017, he directed Gook. And in 2019, he directed Ms. Purple. Full disclosure, even though I've been hosting Words on Film since 2014, I have not seen any of... Justin Chan's other directorial efforts. But if they're anything like Blue Bayou, then they must be really good. Justin Chan in this movie plays a Korean immigrant who was born in Korea but raised in the United States as an adopted child. And he has a name that is probably more distinct of somebody who grew up in the South, particularly of... Latino and French heritage. His name in this movie is Antonio LeBlanc, but he is American by adoption. And he is a Korean American man raised in the Louisiana Bayou who works hard as a tattoo artist to make a life for his family. His family, by the way, consists of his wife, Kathy LeBlanc, who's played by Alicia Vikander who is, this is one of her um, only times playing an American. And she's also very much like Amanda, Amanda Stenberg, one of those actresses who was in three or four films a year. In fact, when she won an Academy Award for the movie, which she did with, um, uh, for the Danish girl, she was also in the movie Ex Machina, And she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for The Danish Girl with Eddie Redmayne. Uh, That that was the name I was blanking on. I think she should have won for Ex Machina because she was excellent in that. But anyway, Kathy LeBlanc is um, Antonio LeBlanc's wife. And they have a child whose name is Jesse, presumably short for Jessica, who's played in a very stirring performance by Sidney Kowalski. And while 
Jesse is Kathy's daughter. She is Antonio's stepdaughter. And as it turns out, their her ex-husband is a police officer with whom Antonio continues to have run-ins several times. His name is Ace, and he's played by Mark O'Brien. And while Antonio is living at first sort of under the poverty line, but still keeping him and his family afloat, he must confront the ghost of his past as he discovers that he could be deported from the only country he has ever called home. So Justin Sean is about uh, 40 now. I think in this movie he plays somebody who's younger because he has no memory of being born or being raised in his native Korea, presumably South Korea, hopefully not North Korea, but that's not, that was a detail that went over my head as I was watching this film. But if you think that somebody who was adopted into this country and is married to an American woman does not have to face deportation, think again, because in this movie, it details that even somebody who is adopted does face deportation given federal circum- uh, federal circumstances and a lot of legal red tape, as described by his appointed lawyer, Barry Boucher, who's played by Vondi Curtis Hall, another actor who's been around for quite some time. And while you might not know Vondi Curtis Hall's name, you definitely know his face when you see him. And this is a film that you might not think is realistic because who, what kind of immigration office would since deport somebody who was essentially raised in America by American parents and is married to an American and also has children here in America like Justin Chan's character does. But the ending shows that this actually is a valid immigration problem and that there are people in this world or in America who were deported recently even though they were adopted into this country. It's a very hot topic because you hear a lot about children who get come here illegally with their foreign parents. And in the uh, Republican circles, this is known as an anchor child. And you know that the United States is supposed to protect these child these children and controversially that hasn't happened but it should anger more people that that foreigners who were raised in this country and were adopted into this country still potentially face deportation if they don't get the right papers in and the immigration system here in America getting people to be illegal immigrants is much much harder than you think. It's not just people's willingness to come to the United States. It's not just their determination to learn more U.S. history than arguably American children do in American schools. It's a lot more complicated than that, and we have a lot of work to do as a nation to reform our immigration policy. But I do think that 
Blue Bayou is a great tool for getting that message across. And Justin Chan writes, directs, and acts in this movie incredibly well. He is the sole writer of the story and the screenplay. So I don't know for sure if Justin Chan himself ever faced the possibility of deportation, but if he didn't, he probably knows somebody personally that does. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have written an original story like this. But Justin Chan and Alicia Vikander act very well. They have amazing chemistry. And you watch this film and you don't ever wonder how these two came to be. Also, Justin Chan drives a lot of unique personality to his character, Antonio LeBlanc, not to mention having a very, very convincing down in the Delta, Louisiana accent. And I also thought the scenes between him and Sidney Kowalski work very well as well. As a matter of fact, there's one last scene at the end between Justin Chan and Sidney Kowalski that is nothing less than heartbreaking. So Blue Bayou, I wasn't expecting much going into the movie, but as I came out, I had a few tears in my eyes. Yes. But I also really admired the story and the acting by just about everyone involved. And Blue Bayou gets my rating of a knockout. It is a superb and original independent film. And Justin Chan certainly has a breakthrough as a filmmaker. Not just as an actor, but as a filmmaker in making this movie. I hope he didn't face deportation. I hope he still doesn't face deportation because otherwise where wherever he came from either North Korea or South Korea would be gaining a great filmmaker that we as Americans would lose. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters for the weekend of October 1st through October 3rd, 2021. And arguably the biggest movie that's going to be released in theaters, and there are a lot of big movies coming out in theaters this weekend, I'm hoping I will have time to see all of them. One of the biggest movies to come out uh, this coming weekend is Venom, 
Let There Be Carnage, which is an immediate follow-up to the Venom movie from 2018, excuse me, starring Tom Hardy. And if you stuck around to, to the end credits, you would see a certain actor who would be appearing as the other Spider-Man character, or should I say the other Spider-Man villain, Carnage. And while I'm not a big fan of spoilers, and I try not to include them in this show, I will say that Carnage in this movie is played by Woody Harrelson. So Tom Hardy, as I said, returns to the big screen as the lethal protector Venom, one of Marvel's greatest and most complex characters. Directed by Andy Serkis, who is known is best known for playing CGI characters like Gollum, Caesar from the Planet of the Apes trilogy, uh, prequels, and King Kong. He is directing this movie. I think this might be his directorial debut, but don't quote me on that. The film also stars Michelle Williams, Naomi Harris, and Woody Harrelson, uh, the latter of whom is in the role of the villainous Cletus Cassady, also known as Carnage. Now, Venom and Venom Let There Be Carnage is released by Sony Pictures, not by Disney. So it's ambiguous at this point whether or not Venom and Carnage are going to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because Tom Holland is still playing Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's made two movies so far, and the third Spider-Man movie in the MCU is coming out eventually. I'm not sure exactly when, but it will be coming out. If that Spider-Man and this Venom were to be in the same movie, that would be a fanboy's dream. But it's not like it's not guaranteed to happen. But I know that Disney got Spider-Man on loan from Sony because even though Disney owns Marvel Comics, some of the comic book characters by Marvel, Disney does not necessarily have the movie rights to make. But Disney has been a tremendous asset in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, much to some fanboy chagrins. But the point is, I will see Venom Let There Be Carnage, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's coming out about which I'm very excited is The Addams Family 2. This is the sequel to the 2019 animated movie that featured the voice cast of Oscar Isaac, Charlize Theron, Chloe Grace Moretz, Nick Kroll, Bette Midler, and Snoop Dogg, amongst other um, talented voice actors. And I don't know if Bette Midler is going to be reprising her role in this film as Grandmama because that character, while she was in the the animated Adams Family movie, is uh, not on the poster of Adams Family 2. And I have not seen movie previews of Adams Family 2 because I avoid movie previews like The Plague, <laughs> unlike most of you. But in the Adams Family 2, the Adams family gets tangled up in more wacky adventures and find themselves involved in the hilarious run-ins with all sorts of unsuspecting characters. And I guess from the looks of this poster, the Adams family is on summer vacation because I can see an Uncle Fester that is very badly sunburned as well as an unenthusiastic lurch who is wearing a Hawaiian lei. I'd be interested to see this film. Um, 
I really enjoyed the original uh, Adams Family animated movie. And, of course, The Addams Family is an original creation by Charles Adams. It, it became a TV show, a very celebrated TV show. It became a great live-action duo of movies directed by Barry Sonnenfeld and starring the irreplaceable Raul Julia as Gomez and Angelica Houston as Morticia. Amongst other people, there were other actors in the film, but I'm just going to name those. And I have a fondness for those two Adams Family movies. They're still fun to watch after all these years, especially on Halloween. But with that said, the Adams Family animated film from two years ago was a lot of fun too, and made me laugh quite a bit. And it had an originality to it, which made me believe that it wasn't copying the Barry Sonnenfeld films. But The Addams Family 2 is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that I am very, very excited about seeing is The Many Saints of Newark. The Many Saints of Newark is a prequel to The Sopranos. So not only will it be in theaters, it will also be streaming on HBO Max. And this movie takes a look at the formative years of New Jersey gangster Tony Soprano. And who's playing Tony Soprano in this movie? It is the only actor who has played Tony Soprano on the big screen, minus flashbacks, who is not James Gandolfini. And as we all know, James Gandolfini died unexpectedly in 2012 at the relatively young age of 51. In this movie, The Many Saints of Newark, he will be played by Michael Gandolfini. Is he any relation to James Gandolfini? You bet he is. Michael Gandolfini is James Gandolfini's only child, ergo only son. This movie has a terrific cast, not just Michael Gandolfini, who I'm, I'm frankly not too excited about because... I have not seen Michael Gandolfini in anything. He is filling his father's shoes. He has some very, very big shoes to fill because The Sopranos was a fantastic show. One of the best shows of all time, not just of the 21st century. But in addition to Michael Gandolfini, the movie stars uh, Alessandro Nivola, Leslie Odom Jr. I didn't expect a black guy to be in a movie about The Sopranos, but there you go. John Bernthal as Johnny Boy Soprano. Interesting. Vera Farmiga, Corey Stahl, Ray Liotta, the latter of whom is a gangster movie icon, just based on one movie alone, although he's been in other gangster movies as well. But, of course, I'm talking about Goodfellas. And there are some other actors here, too. I don't see many who were in the original Soprano show. Ray Liotta surprisingly never made an appearance on the original Sopranos show, but a lot of other gangster actors did, like Burt Young and Robert Loggia, um, amongst others. And there, there probably were others. But anyway, The Many Saints of Newark. I don't know how I'm going to have time to see all these films, but I have to see it. I have to, have to, have to see The Many Saints of Newark. So three huge movies coming out. This uh, coming weekend of October 1st through October 3rd, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, The Addams Family 2, and The Many Saints of Newark. These are movies 
I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. It's going to be a very, very short weekend where I have so many movies to see and so little time. There's another film that I know is coming out in a theater near me, just not in my local multiplex. It's in my local art house cinema. And I love the art house cinema, by the way. I love it. Absolutely. In fact, that's where I saw The Eyes of Tammy Faye at Nashville's Belcourt Theater, which is, for me, a home away from my native home of Boston. Or not native, but longtime home of Boston. And being at Belcourt makes me feel like I am in a cinephile's paradise. And the movie that is going to be appearing at the Belcourt, as well as several other art house cinemas, is a movie that's called Titane. T-I-T-A-N-E. Uh, it's a movie that follows a series of unexplained crimes and then... It follows a father who is reunited with the son who has been missing for 10 years. And Titan is defined as a metal highly resonant to heat and corrosion with high tensile strength alloys. I guess that's metaphoric. But anyway, the movie stars Vincent Linden, Agatha Rousset, Garance Marillier, and Lais Salame. So this is a cast of which I am not familiar. I believe this is a foreign film as the director, uh, Yulia Ducournau, was, is a native of uh, Paris. And she's actually more than a year old, uh, excuse me, more than a year younger than me, interestingly enough. So yeah, she's kind of in that lost generation, not quite Generation X, but also not quite a millennial. I'd be interested to see Titan, and I will, if I see it, and I'm not guaranteeing that I will, but I hope to see it, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. So now that I've reviewed for you the movies that are coming out in theaters, let me see, or let me tell you what movies are going to be coming out on Netflix this coming weekend. Well, let me just limit to this coming week because I'm getting a little bit of mixed signals about what movies are going to be appearing on Netflix for next week being September 27th through October 1st, 2021. And on Tuesday, September 28th on Netflix, there's a series that's going to be premiering called Ada Twist Scientist. It's a series, not a movie. And there's also a comedy special that's called Attack of the Hollywood Clichés, which sounds like a very interesting premise, but I can't tell you whether or not I'm going to see that because comedy specials, the reason I don't review them on this show is because they are either funny or they're not. But on Wednesday... September 29th, there is an original Netflix film that will be premiering, and it's called Friend Zone. And Friend Zone is a movie about a hopeful romantic by the name of Tibal who believes his luck could change when sparks fly between him and Rose. But can he go from bestie to boyfriend? Man, have I, I am very familiar with the Friend Zone. This is actually a Belgian movie. It stars Manu Azem, Nada Belka, or, and uh, Mikel Lumiere. 
If you are familiar with any of these names, you are probably Belgian yourself. But I really kind of wish this was an American film because there are some times where I just don't feel like reading the bottom of the screen. But I might give this movie a chance. I'm not guaranteeing that I will. But I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I see it. There's another film that's coming out on Wednesday, September 29th. And it's called No One Here Gets Out Alive. And this is, I'm I'm trying to find the original um, or 2021 movie because there are several films that are called No One Here Gets Out Alive. There's one that's a tribute to Jim Morrison because that was not only the name of Jim Morrison's biography, but it was also the uh, line from the Doors song 5 to 1. 5 to 1, 1 to 5. Um, no one here gets out alive and my search is not yielding me any convincing results. Oh, never mind. I found it. So no one here gets out alive is a 2021 horror film that looks really bleak. It is about an immigrant in search of the American dream who, after being forced to take a room in a boarding house, finds herself in a nightmare She can't escape. So this takes place in America, but it is directed by Santiago Mengini, who has directed such previous films as Milk from 2018. Uh, Oh, yeah, he's produced as far as directing goes. Oh, he, he did direct a short called Milk, as well as another one called Red Wine. I guess he really likes his liquids. No One Here Gets Out Alive is actually his feature film directorial debut. I don't know very much about this director, but No One Here Gets Out... Oh, actually, the movie is called No One Gets Out Alive. Excuse me. Not No One Here Gets Out Alive. My mistake. Uh, But No One Gets Out Alive is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the other film that's going to be premiering on Netflix as a Netflix original is a movie that's called... Sounds Like Love. This is a movie that has a very interesting title. And it also looks like a foreign film. And the movie is about a fashion assistant by the name of Maka, who has just who has just about got her life together after a devastating breakup when Leo, the man who broke her heart, returns. Seeking support from best friends Adriana and Yime, all three will learn love can be complicated. It's directed by Juana Macias, who is a Spanish director. And by Spanish, I mean he's from Spain, uh, specifically from Madrid. So, sounds like an interesting movie. I'm not all that hot about romantic comedies, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So... I have a lot of movies on which to catch up, especially this weekend. So many movies to see, so little time. But that is the life of a film critic like me. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, 
And until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>